Good evening, church. It's good to see each of you out tonight. On Thursday mornings, uh, there are a group of us that have been meeting during the summer, a group of men, and we've been meeting at um, 6 o'clock, I think it is, on Thursday mornings. And uh, last week, we began talking about revival, and we're going to meet uh, this coming Thursday morning, then we're going to take a week off, and then we'll resume our normal Thursday morning men's breakfast a uh, week or two after that. Um, you know, in talking about revival, we, we treat revival as if it was an extraordinary thing, an extraordinary event. Uh, part of that is because we don't understand what revival is. Revival, by definition, and uh, by the way, revival is not, not particularly a Bible word, but revival by definition is what happens to an individual or the people of God in the presence of God. So whenever you read about revival, whatever you read about it, uh, can be explained by that. If it's a true revival, it is what is happening to God's people in the presence of God. And so far from being something that's occasionally important and on the periphery of our lives as Christians, that understanding of revival is really the very heart of the Christian life. That everything rises and falls on the presence of God in your life. Your entire Christian life depends on the presence of God. We tried to underscore that this morning uh, by looking at a particular verse of Scripture. And I want to call your attention to it again tonight. This is kind of part two of uh, this morning's message, Until Christ is Formed in You. In Galatians 4.19 and I just want to focus, I want to zero in on that one verse tonight. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Now read that again. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I don't know if you noticed it, but Paul's really mixing his his metaphors, his word pictures. Uh, he's the one in labor, <laughs> but the birth of the baby is something that happens in the, in the other Christians. Um, that baby is the very presence or the life of Christ inside of them. And so Paul, Paul's having the birthing pains. Um, some translations use the old word travail. I like that word. And, and then the Christians are the ones who are experiencing the presence of God in their life. And Jesus is becoming more and more a real presence in, their, in them. That is the very heart of the believer's life. And if you and I fail to understand that, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to be confused. In a worst case scenario, we are going to be susceptible to deception. And, and I would like us to really do some damage tonight in a good sense by really focusing on the truth. You know, if I was Satan, and uh, I've been called worse, but if I was Satan and I wanted to completely stymie a Christian's growth, I would keep them from this truth. I would not want you to know about this. I would not want you to hear it or understand it or comprehend it. So if you really want to do one on the enemy tonight, 
I would listen carefully as we, as we take this apart. This morning I mentioned there were two things I wanted you to see, and this is just very quickly by review, but Paul's labor pains, how's that expressed? It's expressed pi- primarily in prayer. Uh, we see it in places like Colossians 1 and the, about the last half of Col- uh, Ephesians 3. Those are two examples that come to mind right away where Paul is praying for new Christians and he's praying that something would happen inside of them that would be observable on the outside. And typically what he's praying for is that they would be filled up with either the knowledge of God or his will or filled up with Christ. When he prays in Ephesians 3, he prays that the Holy Spirit would do this thing inside of them so that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. And these are Christians he's talking about. You know, he's praying that, that the Holy Spirit would strengthen them in their inner man, that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. And so he's consistent in what he's looking for. He's consistent in what he's praying for. But, but I'm not sure we capture the concept of labor pains and travail. This is so important to him. And as these new Christians are being infected with a false kind of teaching about what it means to be a Christian and to follow Christ, that it's always grace and something else, as they're infected with that notion that it's grace and something else, he is just deeply concerned. And so, and so that's the first thing we see. And then the, the last half of that verse is his obsession until Christ is formed in you. That's his obsession. Is that our obsession? Husbands, are you obsessed with the idea of of wanting to see Christ formed in your wife? Wives, are you obsessed with that notion of wanting to see Christ formed in your husband? Parents, Are we obsessed with wanting to see Christ formed in our kids? This was Paul's obsession. You say, well, he was an apostle. Well, what he's obsessed about is the thing he would be obsessed about if he were to walk into Wynn Baptist Church tonight. Is Christ being formed in you? Talk to me a little bit, he would say. Tell me some stories about your walk with God. What's the last time you trusted God? trusted him for something besides salvation when's the last time you trusted him um what are you most looking forward to what is what is the thing that that you are most looking forward to that's about hope how are your relationships with others what are they like that's about love he always asked about faith, hope, and love. Somebody would come to see him from a church, and he would say, tell me, tell me what's going on with these people. We started the church. We got them up and running. I want to see evidence that Christ is being formed in them. And so that, that brings me to, um, to something I want to call our attention to in, in Galatians 5 in just a moment. What does it look like when Christ is being formed in a person? Before I get, get there, let me just back up just a little bit and go back to Thursday morning. We were talking about revival and, and I took some time to just kind of just talk about the, 
the history of revival. And I, I love talking about the history of it. But, but I like to go beyond the history to really peel back and see what was God doing in each of those moments, in each of those events. And, and, and of course, he was manifesting his presence, making his presence real to his people. And they were, they were suddenly becoming New Testament Christians, not just Christians. They were becoming like the Christians in the New Testament. And, and so everything was, was different for them. They approached life differently. The things that were most important to them changed. And they gave themselves to missions. They gave themselves to starting new churches. They gave themselves as pastors and church leaders. And um, just by encountering the presence of God. I came across a quote this week by A.W. Tozer. And when I heard it, uh, when I read it, I, I had to do a search to find the context for it. And it comes from probably the book he's best known for called The Pursuit of God. I do recommend it. Um, but in the preface of that book, listen to what he says. Just listen. See if you can follow um, my train of thought here. Current evangelicalism, and, and he's just talking about people who are, preach the gospel, who believe the Bible and preach the gospel. Current evangelicalism, and he wrote this about 60 years ago. Current evangelicalism has laid the altar and divided the sacrifice into parts. Now think about Sunday morning as you, as you hear this. Laid the altar and divided the sacrifice into parts, but now seems satisfied to count the stones and rearrange the pieces, would never care that there is not a sign of fire upon the top of lofty Carmel. Now he's, he's making an allusion to 1 Kings 18. And those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll remember that story of of Elisha on top of Mount Carmel, and they're, they're encountering one single prophet of God, Elisha, with an altar and a sacrifice, and several hundred prophets of Baal and an altar and a sacrifice. And, and, and the contest was this. Uh, both of them would build altars, both of them would put sacrifices on them, but nobody would light a fire. Nobody would light a fire. And the contest was the God who answered by fire, he's the real God. And we're going to follow the one who answers. Well, those prophets of Baal, you remember the story, they cut themselves, they yell, they scream, they do everything to get Baal to do something. And Elisha's over there saying, well, maybe he went to the restroom. I mean, that's literally what the Hebrew text says. And, and he, he's, a, he, he's just sort of picking at them. He is. And, and nothing happens. And then he comes over here and he says, okay, here's my altar, here's, here's my sacrifice. And he said, um, he said, now pour water all over it. I mean, he's, he's trying to make a point. So they douse it with water. The little trench around it's filled up with water. It's all filled up with water. And then he prays. And, he, and the way he prays, he said, Lord, let the people see that everything I've done here, I've done at your, at your direction. And fire fell from heaven and completely scorched the earth where that sacrifice and that altar was. That's the illusion that Tozer's making. He's saying, we seem satisfied to count the stones and rearrange the pieces with never a care that there's not a sign of fire. But God be thanked that there are a few who care. There are those that while they love the altar and delight in the sacrifice are yet unable to rec reconcile themselves to the continued absence of fire. In other words, there are people out there that just say, where's the fire? Where's the, where's the life of God? Where's the power of God? 
And he's saying there's still people who are asking that question. And I want us to ask that question tonight. What does it look like when Christ is being formed in a person? And I will call your attention tonight to, to chapter 5 of Galatians. So we're just going a few verses past Galatians 4.19. And just look at Galatians 5.1. What does it look like when Christ is being formed in a person? You see, that, that's what he's concerned about. And then as he finishes out the book, he's giving you a glimpse as to what he's looking for. What, what should be happening? Well, the first part of it, obviously, is they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be succumbing to this false teaching about, about a works-oriented kind of Christianity. Uh, I, I worded it this way. What does it look like when a Christ is being formed in a person? Number one, an active faith that relies solely on Jesus to be right with God. Paul is combating rule-keeping as the way of life for a Christian. Rule-keeping. Because there's no difference between saying, I'm going to keep all the rules as a New Testament Christian and an Old Testament Christian. Both of them said that. And he's saying, rule-keeping is not the way that, that you're supposed to live. And these guys that are coming in and giving you all these rules to keep are leading you into something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an old covenant and there's a new covenant. In the old covenant, God said, you will be my people and I will be your God if you will keep my commandments. And God did his part, but could they do their part? I mean, if you read just a little bit of the Old Testament, it's pretty disappointing, isn't it? Over and over and over and over and over again. We just went through Judges, for crying out loud. How good, they were doing, how good were they at doing their part? Not. And then we come to the New Testament, and there are people that were teaching that if you trust Jesus, he will carry your sins away. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the Son of God, and he died on the cross for you. Now, the way that you live is just like in the Old Testament. You keep the rules. And here's some rules that you need to keep. If you could do that, you wouldn't have needed to cross. In your, in your original condition before Jesus, you were not able to keep the rules. The Bible makes it very clear, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your purpose created to reflect an invisible God, to make him visible to a watching universe, you could not do it. You will always fall short of what God intended for you to be and for you to become and to, to the way he wanted you to live your life. Always. So what happens is that old man, that old relationship to sin, that old way of living was what? Crucified with Christ. That's what Paul said. And so that whole approach to life and that whole way of living is gone. Whatever you had to do to satisfy all of the Old Testament law was accomplished in Jesus Christ. When Paul begins to teach about this in Romans chapter 1, he, he takes a quotation from Habakkuk. And he says, the just shall live by faith. It's an Old Testament quote. The just, those who are right with God, are going to live how? Not by works. The people who are right with God, how do they live? By faith. By faith. 
The life I live now, Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so this big discussion of Galatians was about two different ways of life. Rule keeping is a way of life. You put the rules in front of me, I'm going to do my best to keep them, and, and hopefully that'll be good enough when I die. That's rule keeping. The other one is what Paul is about to underscore for us. And he said it's where the Lord Jesus, his life is formed in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you, but he is forming Jesus Christ in you. It's very popular right now at seminaries and a lot of Bible schools to talk about spiritual formation. And, and typically what happens in the average spiritual formation uh, discussion is they move immediately to rule keeping. Well, if you're going to be formed spiritually, here's what you must do. You must have a quiet time every day. You must read the scriptures every day. You must memorize scriptures. You must witness. You must attend church. You must give your tithe. You must become proficient in scriptures so that you can be a godly counselor. And so you need to know all the answers to every question people might possibly ask. And so you need to come to our school and pay us tuition so that you can be that kind of expert with your bags full. Rule keeping. Your effort, your grit, your determination. They call that spiritual formation. I call that death. Jesus said the issue is not whether or not you are growing in Christ. Now that is a true term and that's something we need to understand. But the real heart of Christian growth is this. Is Christ growing in you? And the only way that I can even engage that thing, that concept, is understanding that it's a passive process. It's something that God is doing in me, but I cooperate with it. And one of the ways I cooperate with that process is to actually believe that it's happening. To believe that it's happening. In this particular scripture, he says in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You have a liberty as a Christian from keeping all the rules. And now, I'm going to, don't run too fast on that statement. But there's a real liberty from the law. And you have not been called to live your life trying to, to be good and keep all the rules. Now, I'm not saying that the rules don't matter and that you're not supposed to keep the rules. It's how you go about it. But the first thing that he shows us is that there's this thing called faith, and it's a faith in God. It has set you free from the law of sin and death, and and. And by trusting that Jesus lives in you and trusting that God wants to form him inside of you, that everything that Jesus did, who was the sinless son of God, who, who lived a perfect life and whose righteousness has been given to you as a gift, trust that. Don't, don't go into the keeping of the rules to try to make yourself good enough for God. He says, you already are good enough. You have everything that you need. You are wealthy in Christ. You have an abundance in Christ. Everything you possibly need to satisfy the Old Testament law and every standard God has, you already possess in Jesus, if you'll believe it. I cannot add one thing to what Jesus has done for me. Not one. I was raised in a Christian tradition where, yes, Jesus died for you on the cross, but you had to add to his work by the way that you lived called it meritorious works. I, I had to add to what Jesus did. You can't add anything to what Jesus did. Nothing. And so my active faith 
when Jesus is being formed in me, one of the things that pops up is a person who's trusting God to do for me what I cannot do for myself, trusting him, trusting him to lead me, trusting him to guide me, trusting him to empower me. He has a plan for your life. I'm trusting him for that. He has a way for you step by step to walk through that plan. I'm trusting him for that. And that's true of every person here. God has a plan for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is sufficient, that Christ is sufficient for every need you have, for every situation you will ever encounter? Do you believe that he's sufficient? He is enough. He is enough. You are never at a disadvantage if you believe that Christ lives in you. Never. It's an active faith that relies solely on Jesus to be right with God. What does it look like when Christ is being formed in a person? Secondly, a growing love for others that looks for ways to meet their needs. That's a practical statement. In Galatians 5.13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That's a liberty from rule-keeping. That's what it is. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, I'm free from the obligation of the law because Jesus fulfilled the law on my behalf. But what am I supposed to do with that freedom now? He says, use your freedom to love people. To love them. And that love shows up in meeting needs. Practical service. Meeting needs that others have. Love. When Christ is being formed in you and and in me, that love is going to come and be obvious. That's why Paul always talked about faith, hope, and love. And and love is a big one. And he says, look, if you get into to rule keeping, you're going to get guilty. You're going to feel like you're inadequate. You're going to feel like a failure. Um, or you're going to get proud. Uh, you're not going to realize that you are failing. You're just going to get proud because you keep all the rules and you're, you're better than somebody else. And, and in all of that, you're just absolutely destroying the premise of love which is unconditionally accepting someone else as they are. The third thing, this is where I want to spend the rest of our time tonight. What does it look like when Christ is being formed in a person? It's a choice to live sensitively to the Spirit that allows Him to produce Christ's life in me. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to see that in just a second. But I want you to look at my statement first. It's a choice. This Christ being formed in me bubbles up as a choice that I make to live sensitively to the Spirit. If Jesus is being formed in me, the Holy Spirit has things for me to do, things for me to say, a way for me to live, and I cannot do it apart from Him, right? I can't do life apart from Him. And so it's a choice to live sensitively to the Spirit that allows Him to produce Christ's life in me. I don't want to get off on this, but, but one of the greatest hindrances to your spiritual growth, and by the way, spiritual growth is about Christ growing in me. But one of the great hindrances to God being able to accomplish that in you and me, it has to do with our relationship to the Holy Spirit. 
And there are at least three major things, there's more than three, but there's at least three major things that come to mind that I can do in my relationship to the Holy Spirit that will hinder the process of Christ being formed in me. The first thing I can do is resist him. In Acts 7, when Stephen was preaching, he said, he said, you're just like your fathers. Your fathers always resisted the Holy Spirit. Whatever it was that God wanted to do, they wanted to do something else. And so if I'm resisting the Holy Spirit, in fact, the, uh, the language he uses, this is Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stiff-necked. You know, I want to go this way. And it doesn't want to go. You know, don't, you may be thinking of your children at this moment, little children. They can get stiff-necked. And he says that, that adults, these adults were stiff-necked in their relationship to God, to the Holy Spirit. So resisting him. Another thing we can do is, is we can grieve him. And um, we see this in Ephesians 4, towards the end of that chapter, Ephesians 4. We grieve the Holy Spirit by whom... Um, you were sealed for the day of redemption. And, and that grieving in context, he's talking about saying things that I shouldn't say. Saying things that I shouldn't say. And so grieving the Holy Spirit, obviously then, is letting stuff come out of me that he's saying, no, I don't want you to say that. I don't want you to act that way. I don't want you to let those things come out. Grieving the Spirit. Tells me also that he's sensitive he is a person. He's not an it. He's not an impersonal force. If I can grieve you, you know, hurt your feelings, wound you, you you're a person. And, um, and he says, I can grieve the Spirit. Now, if, I, if he's the primary instrument that God is using to form Christ in me and I grieve him, how far are we going to get? So I can resist the Spirit. I can grieve the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he talks about quenching the Spirit. It says, don't quench the Spirit. literally means don't put out the Spirit's fire. We were just talking about fire. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit. Despise not prophesying, he says. Those are utterances where God brings something to mind and somebody says it. He said, test, keep what's good. Throw out the rest of it. But don't despise it. Don't quench the Spirit. When he's moving, he's speaking, he brings things to mind, and we speak what he brings to mind. He said, don't turn that off. There may be those moments where you're sitting in a break room in an in a office or in a barn or uh, school. There's a break, and you're hearing some people, and they're just kind of ripping somebody else. or they're, they're saying some things they shouldn't be saying. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you, this is an illustration, the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you and saying, hey, say this to them. And at that moment, you can either go along with the Holy Spirit and the impulse of the Spirit, or you can say, not going to do it. And you, you join in maybe and start laughing at what they're laughing at, or you just walk away and you just quench the Spirit. You put out the fire. And whatever way God was going to use you in that moment, you said no. And so this relationship that you and I have with the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical to whether or not Christ is going to be formed in me. My life is going to be transformed. I'm going to be changed. So let's look at that more closely. Galatians 5, verse 16. And um, in verse 16, he says, I say then, 
Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The word walk, in the original language, is a word that literally means to walk around. It can refer to your daily conduct, just the doing life. And he says, as you do life, as you walk around, he said, do it in the Spirit. In the Spirit. And if you will live that way, I'm paraphrasing, but not much. You will not sin. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you are being directed, controlled, and guided by the Holy Spirit, you're going to be preoccupied with that. You are not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, you may feel it. You can feel temptation. And that's not sin, but, but you won't fulfill it, he says. So let me pause and talk about flesh and spirit for a second. In fact, um, I didn't put it on the screen, but in the very next verse he says, for the flesh lusts or has desires that are against or contrary to the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Here's what happened. When you became a Christian, uh, sin was your master, according to Romans 6. Sin was your master. It was inevitable that you were going to sin. It used your desires and impulses to cause you to live in a way that caused you to be independent of God, doing life without God, sometimes just doing life entirely without even a thought of God, and, and you were a slave to sin in that sense. You may thought you were doing what you want to do. I do what you, I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. No church, no God tells me what to do. But you were a slave. When you become a Christian, that changes. And without getting too technical, that old relationship to sin goes away completely. You are no longer a slave to sin. It is not inevitable that you sin. And so you've been set free, and, and so that relationship to sin as your master, and that way of life where you were making your own choices, you were making things happen, you were making yourself your own man or your own woman, that whole way of life is gone, dead, dead, no longer exists. So what is this thing called the flesh? Well, it's not your physical body. Uh, your physical body is made by God. It's, it's wearing out. Um, it doesn't last. But it's not inherently sinful in itself. So when he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about your body. And so he's not saying, well, you know, if, if um, what you need to do to solve your sin problem is physically remove your eyes and hands. You know, and some people actually did that in the Middle Ages because they thought that's what Jesus was talking about. We talked about dealing radically with sin, removing your eyes and so forth. No, it's not your body. The flesh. If, if this is my old relationship to sin, if I represent that and I have died, then, then carry me off and bury me. But if I was waiting to go somewhere and I had bags, well, I've died, but my baggage is still here. They're still packed, and, and they represent, in my mind, memories, old habits, habits of responding, uh, sometimes because of the way I was raised, maybe sometimes because of the years that I lived without Christ, but I have habits of thought, habits of action, 
habits of dealing with certain situations. I have a whole body of habits that has to be destroyed and dismantled. But all of that together, these, these thoughts and these hab- habitual patterns and these memories are like a big island of trash in your mind, and they're there all the time. Now, you and I are not totally set free from the flesh until we physically leave this body and we go on to be with the Lord. But my flesh is the source of desires that are sinful. Um, My flesh is what the enemy wants me to live off of. He wants me to do life in my own strength, my own ability, my own talents, my own thoughts, my own ideas, and independently of God. And if I let it, the flesh will marshal everything in me to do my very best to live for God, and I will completely fail. You can build churches in the flesh. You can build great ministries in the flesh. Um, you can do a lot of stuff in your own human self-effort. So this, this flesh thing is, is there in us. wants us to be independent of God. He says that the flesh is at war with the spirit. Occasionally people will come to me in the, in the context of a, of a counseling or a conversation about a struggle that they're having, and they're saying, Pastor, I have struggled so much with sin, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And, and sometimes I say it, sometimes I don't have to say it, but you know, that very struggle is one of the great markers that you are, in fact, a Christian. It would be if you came to me and said, I never struggle with sin, that I would doubt your salvation. It's that struggle that's one of the markers. He said, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh, and they are contrary to one another. They cannot commingle. You can't do spiritual things in fleshly, uh, with a fleshly engine uh, for God. You can't do it that way. You just can't. And so, now, in case there was any doubt, he says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Two totally different ways of living. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a real presence in your life. We're not going to go very deeply into this, but he speaks, he commands, he leads, he directs. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in the words of Jesus and how he lived his life. So the Holy Spirit is present with you if you're a Christian, and he is there to be for you all that Jesus would be if he were there in person. And he says, it's to your advantage that I go and send this Holy Spirit, the Comforter, into your life. Now, if I were to ask you and take a poll, of course, you'd know the right answer now. But if I were to ask a question right now and say, would you prefer Jesus to be here right now or would you prefer the Holy Spirit to be here right now? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many would say, I prefer Jesus to be here right now? And then, and then I would say, how many of you prefer the Holy Spirit to be here right now? And then we would raise our hands. Jesus said, it's to your advantage if I leave. It's to your advantage that I'm not here physically. Because when I sleep, I'm not available. When I go fishing, I'm not available. When I go 20 miles away, I'm not available to you. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's always with you. He will be with you forever. He is truly your forever friend. And so walking in the Spirit, if I walk under his influence, responding to his promptings and his directions, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now verse 19, in case there's any doubt, says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, and look at these, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, 
dissensions, heresies, and he's not talking about doctrine there. The word literally means divisions, causing divisions, uh, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And that word in the like means I'm just getting started. You understand that? It means the list is not exhaustive. He's saying, and stuff like that. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's your way of life, if that's who you are, if that's what, you know, so many times we hear people who do things like this in church, and it's their way of life. That's what they're known for. We just kind of say, well, Uncle Bob, that's just the way he is. And I can tell you right now, that's not a Holy Spirit that's motivating that behavior. I can't tell you for sure that he's lost or saved. But I can tell you that's the flesh at work. That's not the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, and notice, where does this fruit come from? From the Spirit. Then come from me. Now, how many of you have spent time trying to develop some aspect or fruit of the Spirit in your life? By memorizing Scripture and through grit and determination, you are determined to be long-suffering. Gentle. I'm going to be gentle. Notice fruit is singular. In the original language in English, you can use fruit as a plural singular, but in the original language, it's singular. There's one fruit. There's one fruit. So who do you think this is describing? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who do you think that is? Sounds like Jesus to me. That's the right Sunday school answer most of the time, isn't it? Sounds like Jesus. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, when he's in charge, he's calling the shots, he's forming something inside of you, what comes out? Looks like Jesus. And so what I need to do, what I want to learn to do, and, and we all have to grow in this, by the way. We don't just start walking in the Spirit. Uh, I've had six kids. I've watched every one of them learn to walk, you know. And, and they start walking, and it's like, <laughs> you know, they fall back. And then they go this way. And then they go this way. And there's sometimes... <laughs> Jim sucks. That's, he does that sometimes. <laughs> we learn to walk, don't we? And so sometimes we get it right, and I'm, I heard correctly, and I was obedient, and I was responsive, and I was trusting him. And other times, well, I got close. And so we learn to walk in the Spirit. We learn to recognize his voice. We learn to be responsive to him. But it it ultimately results in a transformation of our life. And you may not achieve this 100% of the time. We don't believe that, we don't believe as in our teaching and our belief system, we don't believe in sinless perfection ever happens to anybody on this side of heaven. We do believe that if we're walking the spirit, we won't feel the lust of the flesh. And so I should be more loving than I used to be. I should be more joyful than I used to be. I should be more gentle than I used to be. Y'all have only known me about four and a half, almost five years. I wouldn't want you to know me 30 years ago. 
uh, 35 years ago. And um, he says, against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The Spirit gives us life. He gives us spiritual life. He says, if that's true about you, let us walk in the Spirit. And here's what I want you to see between verse 16 and verse 26. Verse 16 says, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The word there, peripateo, means to walk around and do life. In verse 26, when he uses the word, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Different word. Different Greek word. Stoikeo. Instead of walking around, this word means to keep in step. And it really is the picture of a marching band or soldiers who are marching together and they all step together at the same time. He says if we live in the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit, but he, he, he's even more precise to help you and I understand. He says if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. That means when the Spirit moves, I move. When the Spirit brings a an impulse to you and you know it's him and you acquire that discernment over time you recognize more and more when the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something and you say yes he says let's keep in step with the Spirit and there's times when you're getting it and maybe the guy sitting next to you isn't it, and you can help him you say guys I just don't think that's what we ought to be doing I don't think that's where we ought to be going I'm not sure that that's what we ought to be talking about what's the Holy Spirit saying that's all we, we need to care about. That's all we really need to know. Is what is the Holy Spirit up to? As we respond to the Lord tonight, what he has said, how do you need to respond? As you look over just even this past week, how much would you characterize of your week and describe it as, I was walking in the Spirit? You say, well, I don't know if I, when I was or when I wasn't. Look at those lists. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, good. Or look at the other one, which is not an exhaustive list. Over the course of the past week, were you cooperating with the Holy Spirit? Or were you ignoring, resisting, or grieving, or quenching the Spirit? And dear ones, this is the very heart of the Christian life. Without this relationship to the Holy Spirit, we are altars with no fires, individually and as a church, collectively. He is our life, and He is sufficient for everything you and I will encounter this week if we will turn to Him. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. The pastors and I will be standing down front in just a moment, and we are here to encourage, to pray with you, to bless you. If you came here tonight and saying, I just, I just need to know how to have a relationship with God. I don't even know where to begin. Come talk to one of these guys. Come talk to me. We'd love to share with you how a person can have a new life in Christ how all your sins can be forgiven and how this new life that we've talked about all evening can begin in you. Maybe you just are in the midst of a struggle, a battle 
and you just don't see how the Holy Spirit can help you through this, and you just need someone to pray with you, maybe it's a neighbor sitting on the pew, maybe it's one of the pastors or myself, or maybe you just need to come down front. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His way, his way 